0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild podcast. I'm your co-host, Tim Chelswick. And joining me is Mr. Matt Drury. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited because
1: today, you know, usually we do our little BS session, getting, mm-hmm. you know, what, what have we been up to Still the last, yeah, last couple of weeks where we've been hunting, but not today. I want to get right into it because we got Let's a special guest with us. We have Mr. Pete Shepley from PSE, Precision Shooting Equipment, and uh, a longtime partner of ours, I think, running on 13 or 14 years now. Pete, hello. How are you today?
2: pretty good so far 88 degrees here today
1: hey you don't pretty have to brag <laughs> <No> kidding. <laughs> you know <laughs> although it's been unseasonably warm here in the midwest this year it's it's kind of given us a slow start to the fall um you know realistically september was really warm and most of if not all of october has been really hot here so i heck i think we can we can actually relate with some of those temperatures mm-hmm. you have out there in tucson
2: Yeah, you can tell it's hot out here because I haven't got the big elk pictures this year on my phone like I usually get. So I don't think people really, uh, really got them engaged. So it's uh, kind of a different year. It just seemed like there aren't any elk. You know, I haven't seen only but one big picture of uh, one picture of a big one. Dirk Eddy from Montana, one of our staff guys, and he shot one at about a 410. So that's the only big one I've seen.
1: Yeah, our guys struggled out west this year, whether it was mule deer hunting or elk hunting or whatever the case may be. We just didn't have as much luck as we yeah. usually do. And, we, you know, we probably had. I bet we had, I don't know, eight guys out there hunting this, this early season. So it was a, a slow start for us. But now the whitetails are kind of kicking in. The rut's getting closer. We're making up for it. We're making up for that
0: lost time.
2: Yeah, I'm seeing big pictures of whitetails coming on my phone every day. Big yeah. you good.
0: Yeah, good. Cool. Well, Pete, we're so we're so excited to have you on the show. Um, you recently inducted into the uh, Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame, so congratulations on that. And and do and, and and for good reason because you're responsible for a lot of innovation and why the archery industry is where it is today. So so thank you from us for for your service over the years and and just kind of wanted to give people maybe a thumbnail sketch of how you started out in the archery industry because it wasn't always an industry per se someone had to kind of kick it off
2: well i started shooting a bow about in the mid 40s with uh i uh, was on the farm a lot with my grandpa gail up in rockford illinois so uh, he was a big outdoorsman <clears throat> hunter fisherman and everything and and a farmer but uh he uh, never let us kids sit still at all. So uh, we uh, made our own bows out of Osage orange, and we'd shoot them till they break, which took about a month when they dried out. And then we'd make another one. But I shot my first archery tournament in 1949. I think it was a field archery or animal around, I can't remember. But uh, I've been in the game a long time, so it's uh, it's uh, been a great, great, great fun time, and I just love the sport. I don't know if anybody likes it more than I do, and and uh, I think I've probably one of the oldest guys in the sport now as far as hunting and tournament shooting and uh, the whole gamut of it. So in manufacturing, so it's been a fun ride.
1: So what is your actual background? Because you didn't start out, you know, just with, with a, a company here, mm-hmm. you started out in another industry altogether, correct? Yeah. A couple of them. Uh, when I got
2: out of school, I worked for U S steel and uh, was in a big wire mill in that and Joliet. And uh, that wasn't a lot of fun for me because a big old dirty place. And, mm-hmm. 100-year-old mill, so I lasted about a year there. Then I went to Olin Chemicals, and that was a sulfuric acid plant. And that was even less fun. I was just running pipe all over the place as an engineering deal. But then a friend of mine, uh, Bob Bliss, who uh, I interviewed with at Magnavox when I was getting out of school, and he wanted me to come there, but I didn't because I wanted to go back home for some reason. And then, uh, anyway, he called me one day. Said, "You tired of that job?" And I said, "Yeah." He's one you want me. So, how about tomorrow? And I said, "Well, about two weeks." And went to Magnavox down in uh, Champaign, Illinois, and uh, worked there for about ten years. And uh, it was a great, uh, was a great uh, thing for me because I got to do products from the beginning and to all the way through to, to selling it and testing them and all the things that go along with it. <clears throat> and I got to run part of the Stinger missile program. I had the uh, safe and arming and warhead, and uh, that was kind of the smart part of the missile. And uh, General Dynamics, I think, had the the seeker on the front, and I think Thiokol Chemical had the the rocket motor on the back end of it. So I had the middle of it, and uh, it was really a fun program. I had it for about eight or nine years, and uh, um, couldn't have been better for me because you learn how to work with all their, I had a bunch of PhDs under me. And for some reason, I don't know I was, I was like a kid compared to those guys, but uh, they treated me really good and helped me all through it. And it uh, turned out really really to be big time fun for me because when you get up in the morning, I couldn't wait to get there because I just loved the job. And uh, there was always something going to happen that day that was really going to be fun. So I just loved the thing right from, from testing him and to building him and the whole program and dealing with the military. And it was just uh, a real educational experience and it kind of led in to making bows and arrows. So uh, <clears throat> and I always tell everybody it was in the aerospace, and now we're in the aerospace again.
1: <laughs> so were you <laughs> so. just really mechanically inclined, or did you actually have schooling in that field?
2: No, no not in that field, but I had a mechanical engineering degree. So it's, uh, you know, when people were talking electronics, they had to talk to me in terms of uh, water pipes and tanks. You know, it's kind of the way you explain it to somebody that doesn't uh, – have a feel for the electrol- electrical engineering aspect of it, but it wasn't hard to pick up, and these guys are really good about uh, about uh, helping me through that kind of stuff. So I was I managed the program and dealt with several engineers and uh, several technicians, and uh, we had a really good fun program that I just loved it. and we the neat thing about the whole uh, stinger missile program was that uh, we were one hundred percent reliable in all testing, and uh, mm-hmm. that was really good. So really felt good about that? And the missile's still going, it's in Raytheon here in Tucson, Arizona now, and it's a 50-year-old 50, 50 missile now, So, but they still make them, so it's wow. a good one.
0: So, uh, so explain kind of the thought process behind leaving a, a probably pretty stable job there at Magnavox to go into the, art, uh, the budding archery industry.
2: Well, uh, one day we had a problem with the missile and we were two seconds slow on arming at minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, so we had a big meeting with all the generals. A couple of big generals were there at the meeting, and and uh, the one general called me "boy," and that was kind of fun. So, uh, put you oh in your boy, you got, you got this thing fixed, and I said, "Yes, sir, General, sir, I got it fixed, but I need a couple more, couple more uh, weeks of testing to to uh, make sure we're good." Anyway, he said, you sure you got it fixed? I said, yeah, I'm sure, but uh, I need that testing time. He said, no, I want you to turn the production line on right now and get rolling. Okay. I said, uh, well, I hear you loud and clear, General, sir, but uh, I'm not doing that. And that was the last minute I worked on that program. Wow. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he didn't fire me, but uh, they took me off of it and put me on other programs. So it really was pretty neat because I would go to Picatinny Arsenal every Friday morning for a bid meeting and people would resent their crazy ideas and weapon systems. Mm-hmm. So if it fit, if it fit the era, area that I had my expertise in, then I would bid on it to to try to prove uh, um, the uh, um, viability of the uh, program, or the weapon could work or we could even make it or manufacture it. So uh, I did. A, I did that for a couple more years, and that put me at about 10 years at Magnavox, and and uh, I was really kind of getting tired of it, and I wanted to do something, and. I, and uh, I told my boss I said, you need to lay me off on of these days, and he said, well, "Why don't you quit?" And I said, "Well, I said I need the the money that you owe me for uh, leaving." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so anyway,
0: uh,
2: <laughs> about a while, and he uh, he uh, he threw a cardboard box in my desk there. About six weeks later, and says, "Get your stuff together and see you. And wow. uh, so we shook hands. We're good, really good friends, and. Uh, so I left there and uh, started making uh, plastic release aids, and cushion plungers for air arrests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the plastic veins came into part of it and uh, little wrist slings, just little, little, little trinket stuff, you know, that, but it was really fun because I could make more money in one night watching Johnny Carson making some of these toys than I could make working all week. So that was really kind of fun, So especially in the sport you liked. And then it would, we bought an old junk motorhome, and we traveled all the archery tournaments. And on weekends, I'd sell all this stuff. And people loved it, and I figured, well, we can make this work. And then uh, as we went along, we got to making more and more things. And first one, we made a bow and took it to Indiana to their state championship. And uh, before I left the tournament, I'd sold 200, uh, 200 compound bows and didn't know how I was going to make the third one. So, <laughs> Were
0: you a little clue. nervous then, <laughs> taking those orders? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: people ask my wife, "How do you stand that knowing you're gonna have a paycheck on Friday night?" And she's, "Well, I don't know. I never thought about it. It's always worked." Wow.
0: But yeah, it was. Uh,
2: it was a great journey there because people trusted you to make stuff. They knew I'd been around the sport a long time, yeah. and uh, they had. A, they knew I had a pretty good feeling for products, and uh, so, you know, it's one of these things. You you have a card table out in front of your old junk motorhome, and and yet the archery tournaments, and you'd sit there at two o'clock in the morning talking to people, and uh, and they'd buy stuff. So. And they were happy with it, and it was really, really kind of fun. It was just, really the kind of the best days. You know, people look, you look back at it. Those are the best days because it was pretty much stress free. uh, So you you started a lot of great products.
1: You started the company. Was that in the early '70s that you started officially started PSE?
2: Yeah, right. But about '70, I think it's kind of debatable. But it was 1970, really.
1: So, so when you made that leap and started doing it full time, I mean, before you started making the bows and had that big order come through in, in Indiana, how much, how many of those like plastic veins and how many of the trinket type stuff were you making? And, and where were those, were you distributed, distributed them somehow to dealers? Yeah.
2: Well, I would, uh, most of it was just retail sales at archery tournaments, but I did, uh, I was, we were located in a hog house behind my, my house, Sure. and i just filled in the little doors where the hogs would go in and out and shoveled it all out and poured some concrete in there we had about 1800 feet in there i guess and uh but uh we did a million dollars in sales the first year out of it oh and gosh. it was really uh you know uh pretty good profit of it so uh, it, it it got everything started but the, the 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 plastic veins and the release aids really started it because uh because they were very popular at the time and still are of course um uh, uh so we could we could fund making the uh um uh, um uh, the bows that we we wanted to do, so that's what got the bow started
1: that's incredible in your first year that's, <laughs> like those that would be like a number you'd be proud of today no kidding. <laughs> much less nineteen seventy I mean that's really a hog barn that easy today, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, is, is is there any gadget from back in those days that kind of still exists in some, you know, a little more modern iteration that you're really proud of?
2: Oh, gosh, not really. I don't, I don't, I don't think of it. Uh, you know, we don't make the veins anymore. We don't make the air rest parts anymore that yeah. we did then. And the release aids we made are just one little solid plastic piece, but they were the beginning of release aids. And uh, there was somebody in California, one or two guys in California, that came out with them about the same time I did. And they were kind of takeoffs of like the Chinese thumb ring and things like that. That uh, was an ancient thing. It was not quite the same, but mm-hmm. it was just a plastic ledge that you hooked the bowstring on and pulled it back with your index finger and squeezed it off with your second finger, and it worked really good. And they were just as, every bit as accurate as the mechanic releases we have today. Really. So.
1: That's so a, as you're getting inspiration for those types of things, where is it coming from just the need to, to uh, you know a need for a product that would do a certain thing for you when you're out there shooting or where does that inspiration come from? I don't know
2: where it came from to tell you the truth you just you you sit around and you or you're working on something because I usually work on that stuff after work and I get home around five or six o'clock mm-hmm. I'd be working out till ten eleven o'clock at midnight. And uh, as you're working on something, you'd think of something else. It just The stuff just would come to me, and then you'd make one. I, and I was still at Magnavox in the early 70s, so I'd go to work in a tinker shop in the daytime. I'd go make one. And, uh, or if it took a few days, everybody would go to lunch, but I wouldn't do that. I'd go to the tinker shop. It was set up for engineering guys to go play with. And, uh, and I'd make a toy, and then I'd show it to somebody, and somebody would order one, and I'd make two of them. And then <laughs> just the way it got started.
0: Unreal. Wow so um so obviously the archery industry and archery technology has evolved over time we're looking at carbon risers now but uh but my understanding is that you all created a carbon riser back in 94. is was that one of the the earliest examples of a carbon bow
2: that was the first one yeah no matter what anybody says the first carbon riser was made in 1994. And uh, we made it here uh, at an engineering guy named Alan Smith who ran our engineering department. He's a pretty innovative guy, and between us we we uh, we uh, knew what we wanted. And uh, it was pretty simple, and really it's no different than what we make today. We just had a company in California that uh, did it for us in a little bit different kind of a method of manufacture, but it was every bit as good. And at the time, they were expensive and uh, probably more expensive there just for the handle
0: yeah.
2: uh, than it is now, but it's... Uh, um, we sold, I don't know, two or 3,000 of them, but um, uh, we just couldn't get enough of them to really make it work. And at the time, if we couldn't sell, you know, three or 4,000 of a model of bow, we kind of just dropped it. So uh, it, it got, to, I think the company that was making the handle for us went away, and then we didn't have anybody else. And uh, so we didn't think we were making or selling enough of them to, to make it worthwhile. So we dropped it for a long time.
1: Okay. So over the years, you guys have obviously there's a lot of innovation there. What was the most innovative thing? Do you feel like since 1970 that really put PSE on the spot? I mean, when we when we came over, it was that year or the year after you guys introduced the X Force, and obviously you guys made some real leaps and speed there for a bow. And then of course you guys reintroduce the carbon that there's been a lot of things since we've been there 14 years in your opinion, what's the biggest thing, the most innovative thing you guys have done?
2: Yeah, I think it was that, uh, the cam that, uh, put us up, you know, in the, you know, 250 foot a second or 350 foot a second range in speed. And, uh, at the time, you know, um, um, uh, I was talking to Gary Simons at the uh, Archery Trade Show one time. He's a Bear an engineer for Bear, and he and i had been good friends for a long time. And at the time, he was, he was an engineer for Matthews. And we we're waiting in line to go to dinner one night, and he said, "Well, I said, well, Gary, what do you think's going to be the fastest bow at the Archery Trade Show this year?" And he said, "Well, I think boat Tech will have one at about 3:15." And I said, "Yeah, where are you guys?" He said, "Well, we're about 3:12." And I said, "Well, I think we're around 3:10." So uh, we're all in the same boat. But at the time, two feet a second was a big deal, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, he said, you think it's gonna be anything faster? I said, yeah, something's gonna be a lot faster here this year, and I, and uh, he said, who's that? I says, us. I said, PSC's got one. I says, uh, I says I, I'll, I'll beat you at your, bring your fastest bow to our booth tomorrow morning, we'll shoot it through the chronograph, and I'll bet you a $1,000 that I beat you by 35 feet a second. Jeez. He said, that's not possible. I said, well, bring your bow. Well, eight o'clock next morning, he was standing there, but he didn't have his bow. And um, we shot through the chronograph, it was like 347. So. That cam, uh, the X-Force cam, that was a big deal in archery at the time. There's nobody had anything like it, you know. So I tell people when we first started making bows, the, our bow shot 190 foot per second, mm. which is like 30, 40 feet a second faster than the recurve bow at the time, So, which is really good. So my competition bow or my hunting bow, we couldn't make them balance very well. So uh, we had to have cams that were insensitive, so we didn't have a lot of let off. So like my target bow would peak 42 and hold 40. So that's what all the guys, the good guys shooting at the time were doing. And because we just couldn't make them let off a lot and uh, and still have them, they're very sensitive on balance. So that's why we did that. So now, you know, it's um, 40 some years later, we're at 370. So it took all those years to double the speed. And people always ask me, well, how'd you do it? I said, it's just materials and energy storage and energy sure. recovery. It's just good engineering and, uh, and we had the abilities to, uh, uh, with the engineering department, we had, you know, David Croningall and Alan Razor and people like that that were really sharp engineers and a bunch of other guys, too. So uh, we came up with that thing, and uh, it was just a hit of the show, and uh, and it's been that way ever since. So I don't think anybody can beat us in speed. You,
0: uh, you know, I, I sometimes wonder back in the early 70s when compombos were coming onto the stage, why why they were adopted. If the let-off was so minimal, what was really the benefit that caused people to move from their recurve to something brand new?
2: Called speed, 30 to 40 feet yeah. more per second. Yeah, so that's what it was, it was all about, speed. Okay.
1: So, so in your opinion— It
2: d- much easier to shoot at the time. They are about the same you know, technically for shooting. Mm. You know, skips.
1: Do you feel like there's another jump of any kind— on the horizon, whether it's PSC or someone else. I mean, do you feel like you guys have kind of reached that plateau of speed or do they still keep those engineers still keep kind of finding, you know, ways to inch out a little bit more from those bows?
2: No, we always do that. But the thing is, uh, you know, if you, you there's no such thing as a hundred percent efficient. You gotta store the energy, then you gotta get it back to propel the arrow. So, you know, we're in the in the low nineties or so and so you can't be a hundred. So Getting more performance is uh, is uh, is you're not going to get it from any being any more efficient. So the thing now is keeping the bows together and making them work, sh- making them shoot super accurate, which we think they are now. And uh, it's uh, there'll be more materials around coming, and you'll get you'll get you know two or three or four feet more per second, but that's probably about it. We don't we don't think that way uh, unless people can handle more weight, you know. One time, uh, a year ago, a guy came to me at a show, and he said, uh, yeah, you think you'll ever shoot 400 feet a second? I said, well, what are the rules? He said, what do you mean? I mean, are they five grains per pound or what? He said, well, no rules. And I said, well, we shot 400 feet a second, you know, two, three years ago. That's that's not hard to do. And uh, I said, but it takes a pretty good bow to do it. And uh, so he said, well, do you ever? when do you think you hit 500 feet a second? I said, that was last week. I said, 500, <laughs> he said, 500 feet per second? I said, yeah. I said, but take you and me to pull the bow. So, <laughs> yeah, impractical. Yeah, we have a couple guys in engineering uh, that could pull the bow, and uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's a hundred pound bow. So with a with a high modulus arrow, high mod- stiffer carbon arrow, lighter lightweight carbon arrow, Well, we could shoot 500 feet a second, and you could hit with it.
0: Hmm. And we
2: could shoot it at our indoor range and shoot it at 50 yards indoors there, and shoot it very very well. God. So guys you can
0: pull it anyway it, it seems like sometimes in, in the archery world we focus so much on technology because we want it to compensate for our lack of time on the range and our lack of discipline i know pete you're a hey huge propo- <laughs> <laughs> you're hitting home there. <laughs> pete i know you're a huge proponent of coaching and and really getting to know your your equipment why why, why do you think we tend to go so far towards looking at equipment as opposed to looking at ourselves and what we're doing right or wrong with a bow?
2: I think it's just human nature. People, just golfers will spend, you know, five or $800 for a fancy new driver just because they think it's gonna knock two strokes off their game is probably gonna be worse because the driver's probably technically uh, way better, but maybe it takes way more skill to handle it. Same with the bow. So the, the thing about archery is uh, people are the same, so they want more performance and uh, easier easier shoot or more shootability of the bow where it's more friendly. Mm-hmm. And, but when in fact, what they need is coaching, and uh, uh, if you have the coaching, um, that will solve all your problems. I, I think. We'll see if it'll solve all of them, but it'll sure help. because you know we have shooting school here at PSC, Alexander Kirlov, our Russian coach here. And we'll have uh, 20, 20 people a month here to come in for shooting school. hundred percent of the people in the last two years, every everyone for the last two years, punches the trigger and Mm. they're here because they can't hit anything but they don't think punching the trigger is a problem and it's all their problem because that target panic situation leads to other situations where freezing and other things like that that will make them quit quit archery in time if they if we don't get it solved so coaching is everything in this sport everything and uh, there are probably only I think maybe uh, a couple dozen really good coaches in the country that can solve that problem. A lot of coaches can get you shooting correctly in that, mm-hmm. and uh, and and do pretty good. But but uh, getting somebody back to shooting correctly after they punch the trigger for a year or two—that's pretty difficult, and it takes uh, some real skill and it takes a lot of stick to itiveness from the shooter.
0: Is is it worth it for a, an average bow hunter to to invest in something? Like, can you buy just like a couple rounds with a? Co- I've never engaged a coach. So I don't know Definitely. what that process is. You're better off
2: to come down for. Uh, I tell people the first the first thing in and and coaching is about three or four days with him, and maybe with an hour or two a day because you probably can't take much more. Mm-hmm. But the more, but, but but the first you know three or four sessions you know maybe you come for a week and you're here five days, cost you a couple three hundred dollars. I think it's forty fifty bucks an hour. I'm not sure, but it's uh, it's time really well spent because he starts at the ground level with you. First two days you probably want to shoot the bow, so. He's trying to set your form up so everything's correct, and then uh, uh, then he then he starts having you shoot, and he works on all the little idiosyncrasies, of things you do right and you do wrong. So he builds on all of that, and it's, you'll come away with a whole different understanding of how to shoot. So, uh, and it gives you that confidence that you can make a 40-yard shot on a deer. You know, otherwise, I tell people if you can't uh, if you're nervous and you really don't know what you're doing, if it's, if if you can't hit a pipe plate at the distance you're going to shoot a deer at, don't shoot the deer. Yeah. So, because you're probably just going to wound him and lose him, so but the coaching is everything and uh i I just can't emphasize that enough about the coaching and the archery industry is very lacking on good coaching i mean it's it's I think it's just absolutely terrible because we've done a poor job of getting more people trained to be mm. you know level one through level five coaches. I think there's maybe only uh, maybe ten level ten level five coaches in the in the country, if that many and uh but I know our Russian coach, um, he's not graded in the levels because he came from Russia, he didn't go through the school here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I know he's, I think he's the top guy in the world. And uh, he does a really good job, whether it's little kids or adults or older people or whoever it is, he's, he knows how to handle people and he knows how to get them to do things right. When people leave, they're very, very happy. But after that coaching for four or five days, what you need is about a hundred five minute lessons, you know, every, every week or uh, every month. Uh, and then I like to see somebody come back, um, come back to PSC the next year and do another four or five days with them. But another thing I think about the coaching, I'd you know, with the with the uh, with 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 all the internet stuff like going on, and you can send him pictures of you shooting, and he can look at them and, and critique you, wow. right on the phone or on the computer. So that's a big thing now. I think that we can train people, you know, and and you can be in. You know, Australia, and we can still train you from El, uh, from Arizona. So uh, that stuff's going to happen, and it's going to get bigger and bigger now. Still, it's going now, though.
0: That's that's incredible. And it, it seems like just just from the outset, it's a bit of a difficult proposition because the the individual, the archer, has to first uh, admit to themselves, "I have bad habits."
1: That's usually the biggest problem is uh, figuring out that you and yeah, and not
0: being such a. Big man that you can't exactly take somebody's yeah. you know help. Yeah, take some humility and uh, and and seek some help uh, via a coach.
2: Yeah, I usually uh, I'll usually talk to everybody if they're they're here for a school, and um, I'll just you know Alexander introduces me and they know me anyway. But uh, uh, and I'll say okay, everybody get up. I want you to walk back out the parking lot, and leave everything you know about bows and arrows in the front seat of your car, and come on back in. <laughs> they all about it. I said, but you know I'm I'm absolutely dead serious about it because we really want you stupid in here because we want to take you from the ground up and do it again so and and do it right Uh, because most people have not had they'll start the game and not have had any coaching and that really really hurts our sport because we'll lose them after a while uh, because they'll get frustrated and we'll lose them they'll go fishing
1: so you guys you know obviously you've been in business since the 70s and and you've been on the ata board you've you've been around this industry For for a long long time in your opinion what is what's the biggest thing that we need to worry about for the future of our industry
2: well i had that conversation uh with the arizona game and fish uh, a week ago the head of the game and fish came down i asked him if he'd come down and see what we're doing here and uh, talk to him and uh, um, i think that we're not building near enough target shooters you know and we said well you know the business is bow hunting 92 percent bow hunting and eight percent target and that's the way it is with psc and i think that's the way it is in almost every company but um they're wondering you know um they put a bunch of money in the fishing game departments around the country put a bunch of money in uh, some of the in-school programs that they're not getting they're not getting target shooters to come out of it let alone bow hunters so i always say that if you start 10 people target shooting 9.9 of them will go bow hunting but if you start 10 people in archery bow hunting almost none of them go target shooting mm-hmm. so the industry needs these people playing bows and arrows year round not just for four months out of the year and I think that's one of the things that really hurts the business and it it, uh, it hurts the sport and it keeps it from growing so we need to we need to promote the tur- tournament shooting and people will be way better bow hunters as a result. And I think they'll have a have a lot more fun in archery too. So, uh, and plus, you know, if you're really getting good at everything, you can travel the world uh, shooting bows and arrows if you want to. And uh, and uh, there's lots of critters to shoot other than the United States. So, uh, I just think that's a big deal to get everybody shooting correctly and then uh, target shooting in the off season.
1: So, a follow up to that in the past few years, we've seen license sales really grow for crossbows as as well as sales in general for crossbows. And, you see a lot more kids shooting them, and then a lot more, you know, our sport is kind of aging out, obviously. Yeah. And the older guys get, you know, shoulder problems or whatever. They feel like they, hey, this gives me an opportunity to stay in the sure. sport I love and, and shoot a bow and arrow, you know, quote, unquote, a bow and arrow. How do you feel about crossbows? Obviously, you guys sell them, you guys make them. I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on the crossbow part of the industry right now?
2: Well, I invented the first compound crossbow. In 1978, no one ever saw one before that. And uh, it was kind of a fluke. You know, we had a bank meeting and we had a little problem with uh, losing money that fall. And uh, so I had a bank meeting. And so uh, uh, one of my engineering guys and I, I started Sunday night at five o'clock and Monday morning at eight o'clock, we had a compound crossbow built and it worked and it worked really well. But the idea of the whole thing was uh, to get us out of a financial problem and to get the banks to stick with us, and um, which they did, and but the thing was, it was really designed to get kids shooting and hunting at an early age, because they could shoot and kill a deer with a crossbow where they may not be able to pull a bow and mm-hmm. shoot it accurately, but they could do it, you know, off a bipod and a in a ground blind um, with the crossbow, and uh, so, and and plus all the guys like you said have bad shoulders and can't pull a bow anymore. That's what the compound crossbow was for in its first first inception from my standpoint. That's what I wanted it for. I didn't want it to replace all the guys shooting vertical bows during the season. So, because uh, I wanted, I want some element of, um, I don't know what, what word I'm looking for there, but I want it to stay the way it had been. So, uh, long bows, recurve bows, and compound bows. So, but then the problem was, is that fish and game departments weren't selling very many Hunting license. The, the decline of hunting had gone downhill a lot, like 15 or 18 or 20 points. So, what happened? They opened all the seasons up for comp, uh, compound crossbow or crossbows to hunt in the regular archery season. And then the other part of it is that um, is that no one in this country could could build a good compound crossbow for less than about seven or eight or hundred or a thousand dollars. So, who stepped in? Uh, the Orient and they could build them for a pretty good crossbow for $300 mm. so that just took over the whole thing people being somewhat lazy mm. and wanted easier or the gun hunters wanted to be able to shoot in the bow season because we had three or four months to hunt and the gun hunters get weaker weak if they're lucky so uh, you can't blame them and they wanted to hunt more so the crossbow fit their fit their ticket really well and uh, I think that uh, it made it easy for them to get into sport and uh, and not that I'm against that; it's just that uh, I don't like as what it's done to people. Sh- not not enough people shooting the vertical bows. I just w- wish it didn't take take that away, and it has taken that away some. So
1: I was going to say it's introduced people, but they haven't converted quite the yeah. same, yeah. and that's that's really the the big issue I think. And you know, I have friends that are are picking up compound bows or crossbows rather, and saying, you know what, hey, this deer's staying out there 50 yards and it just, mm-hmm. I'm not that comfortable with my compound there. So I'm going to take a crossbow with me in the stand tonight and it's legal, you know, and not all States, but the majority of them are opening up. I know Missouri here, Illinois. Uh, and so it's like, man, it definitely, it definitely does open up a lot of opportunities for you but like internally i know even dad he's been shooting it more and more especially since his accident last year and he's been shooting his crossbow more and whereas he's not feeling as comfortable with his compound Mm -hmm. as he was his crossbow it to him it's almost like a um it's a it's a a boost in morale. Oh, sure. You know sure. He, yeah. he the confidence that the he has now. in it is unbelievable. And now every time I go to the farm, he's like, "You want to take the cross or the crossbow with you in the stand?" And I, you know, I'm say, "No, I'm all right." You mm-hmm. know, I, I but I'm 37, and I I love shooting my compound bow. And in my opinion, I don't really have the reason why I need to shoot right. a, a crossbow. And I get it. You know, if a deer was out there and he's a giant, you'd want to have the ability to reach out and, and, and shoot him. But I'm also not that tore up about that end of it either right. to where that doesn't matter to me. I want him to get close. If I'm if I'm archery hunting, I want to compound, you know, with my compound bow. But I don't look down on anybody else for, for using a crossbow. Sure. Uh, but, but it is a weird thing. Like you're hearing more and more and more about it.
2: That's true. And uh, I think you just summed it up. Of what everybody thinks. In fact, um, 50 yards is a short range for a good compound crossbow. I mean, we could shoot two-inch groups and five arrows and uh, at 125 yards out of out of our tech 15s, and we could do it every time, as long as the wind's not blowing too hard. So the accuracy of potential, you know, if you're in a tree stand and the deer's standing out in the cornfield there, and, and uh, he's at 100 yards, for if you do the thing right, 100 yards is not a hard shot. Wow.
0: It's interesting to hear from from Pete's perspective, uh, you, because you do hear a lot of equivocation on the cross. You know, crossbow users will say it's pre- it's pretty much the same thing as a count. Like they're equal, and you know, when it comes to uh, record keeping, and, and are we going to count crossbow kills uh, the same way as we count uh, vertical bow kills? That conversation and here you have the inventor of the the compound crossbow saying it's not the same they're kind of intended for a different purpose and that was for younger people and folks that uh, need a little assistance mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's
2: the way it ended up though so uh, it I'm not real happy about it but I'm glad to see people could still hunt because of the crossbow i mean it's, Absolutely. As far as return, it's a big deal you know it's uh, we got to keep people in the hunting and fishing game in this country there it's uh it's under a lot of pressure now. You know that, especially the firearms hunting. So you know everybody knows what we went through uh, under the last administration with the gun situation. So uh, um, they scared everybody on buying guns and ammo. So people didn't buy bows for five years. They bought guns and ammo. They got closets full of full of uh, ammunition. They'll never never shoot in the rest of their lifetime. But they spent their money there instead of buying bows and arrows. So it pretty well hurt our industry.
0: Yeah, uh, Pete, you mentioned. Um... You mentioned folks in uh, in Asian countries building crossbows on the cheap. I know that that's a, that's a pretty big discussion right now in the archery world as far as knockoffs coming from overseas. Has PSE been been impacted by that? And and if so, can you give us kind of an update on where we are with kind of cracking down on those?
2: Uh, I don't know if there's anything you can do to crack down on it. There's a lot of patents now on different features in the crossbow. I didn't patent the thing when I first did it. I didn't think it was really patentable. I made the first one, but uh, um, the, you know, a $300 crossbow from Taiwan is, uh, if you take care of it how to use it, it's really a really good weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so mm-hmm. people can, you can go to the two or $3,000 crossbow now. Is a lot better? It'll, uh, it'll be, it'll be as good to 50 yards. But it'll be better out to 100 yards because some of the features they can put in them for the additional money you have to spend for them mm-hmm. are worth it. It just depends if, you, if somebody wants to spend a couple thousand dollars for a compound crossbow. But um, are they it, worth it? Well, it depends what kind of deals you're hunting under.
0: Well, And, and, and even beyond crossbows, I know knockoff broadheads are coming out of China and, and other accessories. Have you guys seen any of that coming through? Oh, yeah,
2: of course. Every, it's uh, Everything's being knocked off. Um, um, you can buy anybody's bow over there in China if you order enough of them. I don't care whose it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's gonna be very difficult, I think. Could be difficult uh, uh, in the future because um, um, it's, it's just, uh, if you can't compete, you know, it's gonna be a real problem for the makers in this country. So, uh, but, um, you know, China has now about, they tell me about a thousand archery clubs. Korea has a lot of archery clubs, you know, the best shooters in the world. Uh, there's m- more good shooters coming out of Korea because they have better training programs for target archery. Hmm. Hunting is non-existent there, pretty much. And uh, but target archery is everything, and it's their national sport. So they have they developed some of the best coaching in the world, and consequently have developed some of the best shooters. If you can beat the Koreans, you've really done something. that's very difficult.
0: Well, Pete, <laughs> it, it's it's been it's been great having you on the show and talking about the evolution of the industry and where we are today and where we've been. And Pete's
1: the revolution of the industry. That's what I like about it. Yeah. You know, well, before we go, it, I've always heard this, and I don't know if it's true, and I never asked you this. What is there any truth to the fact that it used to be called Pete Shepley Enterprises, PSE?
2: Well, as uh, four or five engineers were sitting around in a the cubicle there at uh, Magnavox one day, and we were trying to come up with a name for the company. Well, it got to be Pete Shepley's Equipment is what they were saying, but I wanted I wanted a name to, that, um, so we could build guns or cannons or crossbows or regular bows. So it was uh, Precision Shooting Equipment. That's the name we came up with, and it stuck, and uh, there's lots of uh, different words for the acronym.
1: So that brings up a very good point. You guys just started PSE Rifle. Is that right? Right. So take us yes. through some of that.
2: Well, we're looking at some other different products to get into, and this Precision Rifle Series Shooting which is kind of like a lot like field archery, but uh, it's uh, these these guys are shooting, you know, 200 to 1200 yards, and they shoot from different all kinds of crazy positions on a course of, I don't know, 10 or 15 targets. And so we thought, well, we're good at machining and we're good at anodizing. Let's build a let's build a chassis stock for these. We're not building the whole gun, just the stock. And so we uh, just recently got that done, and it's uh, been under. Mm, kind of uh, making all the mods to what we initially thought we wanted and listen to the guys that shoot you know, shoot that uh, competition. And I'm told there's about 25 or 30,000 people shooting that Precision Rifle Series competition, and there's quite a few bow hunters now shooting it. So uh, I think it's going to be a popular sport, and we wanted to get in some other area of sporting goods, so we thought we'd try that.
1: So even, you know, all these years later, you guys are still innovating and, and finding ways to kind of, keep up with the technological curve. I'm sure that's one of the most expensive parts about what you guys do at PSE is the type of equipment that it takes to make those type of products. It's pretty costly, isn't it?
2: Well, a milling machine to uh, run those, uh, we run them on a Makino 99. That's a million two dollars machine. Oh, yes. and, uh, and by the time you tool it up and put all the tombstones and everything on it, uh, you can easily have a million five in it. So, If that thing sets island for 10 seconds it's not making any money so you have to run it all the time to make it pay for itself because it's very very expensive but they're very high-tech machines they repeat to really close tolerances and we have four of those things and then we have about 20 uh, other smaller ones and uh, where we make the cams and all the other kind of accessory parts and things like that on for bows but uh, um, we can we can make you know from little parts to uh, a gun stock series style thing or a bow handle, you know, so it's uh, it's just all part of it. We, uh, you know, we like to look at something that we're, we're, we're good at manufacturing, we're good at machining, and we're good at uh, that, and, and uh, we want to be good at carbon and stuff like that too, because carbon's never going away, and there's going to be lots of products in carbon. Look at the carbon gun stocks now, you know. Uh, our carbon handle bow is just a, a super bow, and uh, if anybody that shot one, you probably can't take it away from them. They, they love it and uh, <laughs> wonderful carry, and uh, it's uh, it's just really, really hard to beat, and they shoot really, really well. So,
1: Your plant takes up a whole city block, doesn't it, as big as well, it is? Well, we have
2: 145,000 square feet
0: under one roof. Hmm. So,
1: It's impressive. It's
0: cool. I can't imagine just the number of machines and
1: yeah going there and taking the tour which we've been lucky to be able to do a couple times with these guys it's just uh it's interesting to see that side of the business the manufacturing side because i don't know that many companies can say that they have that type of manufacturing especially here stateside Mm -hmm. and that's what kind of makes it special about PSE, i think
2: yeah we've uh we've converted one of the warehouses in the building into a shooting range and we uh We're gonna be able to shoot 60 yards indoors. We'll be able to have, we'll have about 90 targets and um, we wanna put on more and more tournaments, more and more shooting events. I don't care if it's air rifles or throwing spears or whatever it might be, (laughs) but uh, we really wanna grow archeries and that's the idea of it. So we wanna put on lots of different kinds of tournaments here. So we um, cleared out some some, uh, warehousing space to be able to do that. And uh, we think that's gonna help a lot. I think the thing, too, to grow the sport is we're going to have to have a lot more talking between, you know, guys like you and uh, you younger guys. We don't need your dad and your uncle to talk <laughs> much because they're old now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, uh, but not. <laughs> we, need to have some, we need to have meetings here and look at what we're doing. We need to have meetings up there and look at what you're doing so that we can figure out how to grow this sport because uh, – the sport needs to be growing a lot because the pro shops are having a tough time, too, as long as everybody else. So mm-hmm. with the downturn in the in the shooting sports industry, so uh, um, we, uh, we, we think that everybody working together, we can grow this a lot. But the pro shops, the industry needs people shooting bows and arrows um, um, year round, not just for the hunting season, because that won't sustain the businesses anymore. Mm-hmm. So and that's a big problem, so.
1: Yeah, Please. you mentioned the school Please. programs. That's that's a big deal. My my neighbor, they have a uh, probably a ten year old daughter, and she actually is in. She started up last year, and I've actually tried to help her along a little bit. And yeah. I know. We have another neighbor that shoots quite a bit. He, are, you, are you coaching her? Not, not a coach. To, <laughs> just, just simple stuff. I'm, I'm not gonna. I am i am not i do not think I'm qualified to coach anybody. <laughs> but when it comes to the simpler stuff, you know, I try to help out, and I've yeah. given her some equipment and stuff like that, and and at least try to encourage as much as much as possible. Let her shoot in the yard if she needs to or whatever. But uh, it's interesting because. Uh, it's a pretty big sport there, and, and I mm. think it is in a lot of areas in the school system. It's pretty big, but the problem is they don't seem to convert. Like you said, Pete, they don't seem to convert to the next portion of their life and continue to shoot. It's uh, true. It's weird because we had a meeting with the MDC here, and, and they said something similar when it comes to youth seasons and the ability that like we just had youth the youth season this past weekend a mm-hmm. uh, 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 firearm season in missouri and they said that the conversion of those youth hunters you get a big participation when they can get that early season and somebody mentors them and takes them hunting but once they age out of the program they don't come back mm-hmm. at, at very low rates do they come back and i think it's something similar is happening to those school programs when it comes to just target archery. So I don't know what we need to do to to convert to the next step of their life, but we're obviously missing the mark somewhere. Yep.
2: Well, one of the problems I think is that, um, is that we do a lousy job on selling the sport. We don't do a good job selling the idea of archery and it's fun. You know, uh, Lenny Bastian wrote that book with winning in mind. And, you know, I think he tells about when he was younger, and I don't know if, if he was uh, pretty chunky or what, but anyway, he knew he wasn't a superstar to play basketball, football, or any of those sports, but he read something for a board, uh, um, for rifle shooting. He says, can you stand still and repeat the same motion every time? He said, I can do that. So next thing you know, he's an Olympic champion and world champion rifle shooter. So we, we have a sport that fits any kid, that if yeah. they can stand in one spot, not move, and repeat the shot every time. We can make them world champion with the right coaching. So we have we have the right ingredients. We just don't have enough coaches or enough kids playing. There's 37,800 high schools in this country. You know, if we could have 10 kids out of every high school, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be busy coaching them. So that's what we need to do. We need some more. We need some more marketing on the kids in school, and explain to them how they can go hunting all around the world. They can mm-hmm. go in tournament shooting all around the world because the world is growing and the tournament shooting and the U.S. is growing slowly, but uh, the rest of the world is growing more more quickly. So uh, we need a good sales job. We need some marketing in there.
0: Yeah, and the mental discipline that comes from archery is has overlap into all kinds of other areas of a young person's life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great form. Yeah. Very good form.
1: Yeah. Well, Pete, we uh, we appreciate you jumping on with us today. It's I mean, we could go on and on and keep talking forever. There's so many Little facets to what you guys do and what you've kind of uh, created an industry that you've helped create that I just I just love to talk about. I love hearing yeah. your stories. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, bet anytime. Uh, we should do some more of this and uh, work on a uh, <clears throat> some salesmanship and how we get kids into the target archery and then we will get them in bow hunting. So uh, I'm in. I Sounds know good.
1: we do that. I'm
0: in.
2: We Need to have you come out here and visit.
0: Anytime. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, Pete. All right, well, thank you uh, for everyone who listened. We appreciate that, as always. Um, If you want to subscribe to the show, do so at all the places you would normally find, podcasts, Google Play, iTunes. Stitcher, Podbean, all those great places you can also catch us over on YouTube, right?
1: Absolutely. So if you're watching this podcast, you're already probably on our YouTube channel. Hit subscribe. We're, we're shooting for 100,000 subscribers, and we're actually giving away a PSE bow when we do hit 100,000 subscribers. It's, it's been a program that we've been promoting for several months here, and we're getting close. We should hit it here in a couple weeks. So you want to get in and subscribe before we, uh, we hit that 100,000 mark. And we're constantly putting up new hunts new tips, new tactics on our YouTube channel. And as always, you can follow us at Drury Outdoors on social media. And mm. the last thing, Deercast. We've been talking about it for months and it's growing like wildfire, yeah. like crazy. And uh of course you could capture Anything we're doing at Drury Outdoors right there, DeerCast, see the kills as they happen this season, Uh, something we've never done before. So we're really excited about that. And it's a free download uh, this season. You can get it on the Google Play Store or the App Store over on your iPhone. So uh, without further ado, if you're wanting to find out anything more about PSE Archery, uh, you could go to psearchery.com and, of course, follow them on all their social media channels as well.
0: Yeah. What a show. I mean, what a legend. A lot of information there. Yeah, amazing. Great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate it. We'll see you on next week's show. Peace.
1: We're adding new videos every week, so make sure to click that subscribe button and check out all of our amazing content. This episode of DoD TV is brought to you by LaCrosse Footwear.